Thanks for listening in. Uh, this is Justin Palinick of the Both Ways Podcast. Uh, I've got Andrew over here with me. Um, thank you for tuning in. Uh, this is the second part of our two-part conversation with Justin Birnbaum, uh, writer at Baseball Prospectus Mets and managing editor of Base Knock MLB. Um, we had a really great conversation with him uh, this past Saturday. Uh, it was really wide-ranging, so we decided to cut the episodes up into two different parts. You can find part one in the uh, in our archives uh, over at SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes if you haven't heard it there. Um, but this second part of this episode will focus on the Mets and Dodgers and where they've gone since the 2015 NLDS. Uh, and Andrew, let me just get a sense for you know how you felt the conversation went and you know what we touched on. It, I think it was it was overall really positive, and JB had some really really good points that he brought to the table on both teams. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. You know that we we talk about these two teams that uh, you know series kind of played out. You know, obviously, the Mets won. The Dodgers fell in five games, and you know things have kind of you know gone different ways for both teams. And you know the Mets have kind of fallen off recently, and the Dodgers, you know, kind of having this historic 2017 season. And it was interesting to see, uh, you know, our three perspectives on these two teams. Yeah, uh, so we hope you'll enjoy, again, part one available in the archives. But here we are with part two. Uh, listen in. A key part of the Dodgers' history is they give away Zach Greinke to the Diamondbacks. They let him walk after a Cy Young caliber season. Mm-hmm. Um, did you guys think at the time that that was kind of you know, gonna like doom the Dodgers in any way because you know when he left at the time I was like you know their rotation to me didn't look very strong after that they had Kershaw at the top and then from there it was kind of it was okay it was like Red Anderson Brandon McCarthy they got Kenta Maeda um, Ryu. Ryu yeah I mean they had a few guys um, but when Granke went to the Diamondbacks I thought that might have been you know the opportunity for the rest of the NL West to kind of band together and kind of contend with the Dodgers and it just ended up you know, it was it didn't happen, and Granky's had a resurgence this year with the D-backs, and the D-backs will probably make the playoffs. But how do you evaluate, you know, the Dodgers organization, especially with their um, ability to keep up a really competent rotation and consistently have a top five bullpen in baseball? Um, how how would you guys evaluate that? I just think it's a really interesting organization, and it's really going to become the 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 typical kind of way to move forward is cycle through eight to 10 man rotations, basically. You know, it's funny because, you know, when people talk about the Dodgers success, they always, you know, lump that in with how high of a payroll they have. But if you really look at it, a lot of their payroll is tied up in guys that aren't contributors anymore. Mm -hmm. Now, going back to, to when Granke left, I kind of, you know, I sympathize with the Dodgers not wanting to really go after Granky with the price tag he had. But I do remember that. I don't remember the exact figure, but they had made Granky a pretty sizable offer. And with the Dodgers, Granky would have had assurance of being, you know, a postseason caliber team year after year. You know, even just pairing Cranky with Kershaw and some of the elements of that lineup with Seeger emerging, with Turner, a solid player, that they would have been repeat, you know, make repeat appearances in the postseason. But I kind of theorized that letting Granky go was, you know, in anticipation of Julio Urias, you know, mm-hmm. really ascending into that role and becoming a star in that rotation. You know, he was always viewed as a super prospect. And the fact that he really hasn't been able to find his groove and establish uh, a place in this rotation makes you question that a little bit. But at the same time, the Dodgers have just proven that they're an unbelievably deep team. And, you know, it's hard to believe that anyone really anticipated that Rich Hill's resurgence would really last this long. Like I know in Oakland, he really found a way to put it together and he was a throw. He was a a trade deadline deal and came over to LA and continued to pitch well. But the fact that he's still able to perform at a high level has just added incredible depth to the Dodger rotation. And when you consider that Alex Wood, who they essentially got 
and I don't want to call it a throwaway trade, but it was an under the radar trade. You know, now you have three guys at the top of your rotation performing at such a high level and you factor in, you know, the, is he a Japanese or Korean import? Kenta Meta. Korean. Korean. You factor in Meta as an import and Ryu too. You're talking about five extremely strong major league caliber pitchers. And then you have added depth to that. You have Brandon McCarthy, who's been, you know, a Bartolo Colon type journeyman innings eater who turns out to start posting sub four ERAs over and over again. And, you know, anytime you go after a team with eight pitchers that can perform, you know, it's a, it's a pretty strong recipe for success. I mean, look at the Mets, the Mets were toting their guns on being a team with eight star pitchers that could carry themselves to the playoffs on depth alone. But the Mets, you know, went down four or five of those guys went down. They weren't able to replenish that depth. And it seems like in the Dodgers organization, it's next man up. It's almost New England Patriot like. Yeah, when uh, when Greinke opted out of that deal, I originally thought that the Dodgers uh, were, you know, like you said, they they did offer him something good. I thought, you know, that they were going to offer him something that was going to be too good to refuse. And, you know, he'd stay in L.A. and, you know, they'd have that one-two punch with Kershaw and Greinke. And especially since, you know, not to try and psychoanalyze Zach Greinke, but, you know, he's had those anxiety issues in his career, you know, especially when he was in Kansas City. So I thought hey, you know, he won't mind, you know, being that number two guy with the Dodgers, although it is a big market. But, you know, he ends up, you know, leaving them for Arizona, which I thought at the time, you know, good move for the Diamondbacks. You know, they get a, you know, a quality pitcher in Granke. And I thought it was going to hurt, uh, you know, the Dodgers just a little bit, especially since, you know, this was a team that, you know, was going to have a new manager in Dave Roberts, you know, unproven in, in the big leagues as a manager. I know he had coached with the, the Padres you know you didn't know what you were going to get with him you know leading the team and like uh like JP said before you know they had Kershaw but you know kind of you know following him in the rotation you didn't have too many guys that you you know you could rely on as a as a you know number two consistently but you know this Dodgers front office you know with Friedman and Stan Kasten and Farhan Zaidi, you know, these guys, you know, they just, you know, they get it, you know, like you said, they're kind of like these, the, the Patriots of baseball, you know, it's like next man up. They just always seem to find someone, you know, whether it be in the draft or, you know, through a trade or a free agent signing where, you know, they can get this guy that um, can fill in, you know, whether it's in the rotation or even in the lineup, like, you know, we were talking about it, you know, before the podcast with, uh, with Chris Taylor, like who expected Chris Taylor to have this great of a year in left field and I think it just speaks to you know how well run they are as an organization that they're able to find guys like him and you know bring in Rich Hill in the trade who I'm, I'm some honestly surprised that Met fans don't complain more about Rich Hill's success because you know considering that he pitched with the uh, the Long Island Dutch Long Island Ducks which are essentially you know in the Mets backyard um, so I'm kind of surprised that people haven't complained about that more but you know it just always seems like these guys you know they they have a lot of guys that end up going on the disabled list and you know they have i think more time on the disabled list than the Mets do this year you know in terms of uh you know days spent on the DL but they always just seem to find you know a guy to fill in that can contribute it just i think that says a lot about you know how well they're run as an organization as a whole the yeah. quick hitter before JP jumps in is that, you know, you said how well their organization is run, but this is an organization that eight or nine years ago was completely mired in scandal exactly. because they were, they were, you know, the ownership was breaking up. There was a divorce involved. So it's, it's crazy that they were able to turn around that quick. Yeah, it was a very, yeah, that's a great around. point, JB. I mean, they were in shambles, not le- less than a decade ago. And the fact that they have turned it around is amazing. And I agree with you, JB, also that their payroll number is really misleading. They're playing money ball with house money. That's what it is. I mean, they, they are a rich organization, you know, with their ownership group. However, like you said, they're mired in contracts that date back to, you know, the Carl Crawford, Josh Beckett days, you know, I mean, that's, that, that's what they did. And it partially did help, you know, move their organization forward. And now they have one of the best farm systems in baseball. Uh, not only is Urias around, I mean, he's had his injuries, but they have Alex Verdugo and, you know, um, Walker Bueller, who is touted as he's going to make an impact this year in the playoffs. And they're, they're going to bring him in, in, in a relief role. Um, and top to bottom, I think we should discuss the trend of depth in the rotation because given 
the shelf life of arms these days with starting pitchers having trouble throwing upwards of 140 innings uh, and things like that. Um, do we see the system where you can kind of plug and play with a nine to 10 man deep rotation and it's going to be about arm accumulation um, to the point where you're going to have maybe six or seven guys on your team throwing 110, 120 plus innings per year with, you know, a one or one and two or a one and one a throwing, you know, the, the typical 200 to 210. I think that that's going to become a trend in baseball. I don't think that the shelf life of arms is going to hold up long enough to maintain the traditional setup with guys throwing, you know, one through five throwing 200 plus innings per year. I don't think that that's plausible anymore. I mean, for, for that situation, which would actually be more ideal for players these days because it would protect their arm more. I feel like the only way to do it would be to add roster spots because, you know, even though you're limiting your starters, I mean, to, an aside to all this is that innings limits and pitch counts are something that I find extremely arbitrary and they frustrate me when they say, oh, this person's going to be on a hard cap of 140 innings or so. But I guess, you know, I can't really criticize it because there are a lot more factors that go into teams' evaluations of how much tread is on the tires over the course of the season. But going back to what I'm saying is that even if you have a rotation that's eight, nine, ten guys deep, that still means there have to be guys in AAA who are accumulating innings. So unless we see, you know, a roster that will afford a team an opportunity to have, you know, seven, eight starting pitches on the roster, it's very hard to you know, store extra starters in the bullpen without, you know, coming in and tossing them for an inning here or there and then screwing them up for, you know, spot starts and things like that. So I think roster expansion would do a lot to protect arms. And in the long run, if, if pitchers could throw 140 as opposed to 200 innings over the course of a season, it would protect them. But at the same time, you know, if Robert Gisellman is the Mets, you know, seventh man in the rotation, and he's in AAA throwing 150 innings before he comes up, then he's just as, as subject to injury at the big league level as, you know, Syndergaard, DeGrom, who had thrown a similar amount at the major league level. Yeah, I think the the way that we're talking about this, it actually kind of reminds me of, a, you know, fantasy football. You can't have enough running backs and wide receivers. But I think an interesting point that you bring up is, you know, maybe this roster expansion. I think that the way that you could maybe get away with it without maybe having a more than a 25-man roster every game, is having a system like hockey where, you know, you can have, let's say, 30 guys on your team at one time, but you've got to have 25 that are available for that game. So you have, you know, four or five guys that are scratched every night. And so, you know, you can have a guy that, you know, that maybe you want to pitch in a, in a couple of days or have fresh, but you don't want him in the minors burning his arm out. So, you know, you have him, you know, kind of up throwing bullpen sessions, kind of just keeping him loose, but he's not going to pitch that night. So you kind of have him scratch, you know, sitting wherever, you know, whether it be, you know, in the press box or in the bullpen or whatever. But then, you know, in a day or two later, he can come out and pitch, you know, whether it be out of the bullpen or starting. And I've heard this discussed from, you know, a couple different people, but I think it would be an interesting way to do it. And, um, you know, it could, you know, alleviate things when the roster expand to 40 man in, uh, in September instead of, you know, seeing these guys, you know, get trotted out of the bullpen and make a game which should be, you know, maybe three hours turn into a four hour affair between two teams that, you know, are in second to last place or in last place and, um, you know, keeps arms fresher, keeps arms fresh too. So, I mean, I think it's something that, uh, something that could, could be considered next time uh, they talk about the CBA. That's like the new uh, the 26-man rule with the day-night doubleheader. You're yeah. allowed to have that extra guy on the roster if you're playing two in the same day. Yeah, I like that rule. Yeah, I think it makes sense. And it, you're right, it will come down to roster expansion, but MLB needs to consider it because it'll do a better job of protecting arms. Um, kind of to jump back, though, to the, our overall scheme here, which is you know comparing these two franchise arcs you know, over the past couple of years, you big picture look at the Dodgers. 2015, they lose to the Mets in the NLDS. Uh, 2016, they win the division once again and lose, obviously, in the NLCS to the Cubs, um, with Kershaw eventually losing Game 6. Uh, and then we fast-forward to now, where they're by far the most dominant team in baseball. And honestly the most dominant team that I remember watching in my lifetime. They're 90 and 36 right now, uh, completely obscene. It feels like every day nothing can go wrong for this team. Um, and again, you know, baseball's 
kind of a game of chance, especially in the playoffs. It comes down to who gets hot. So you could plausibly see a scenario where in the NLDS this year they lose again um, just based on, you know, unluckiness and things like that. But, you know, they're really well placed to going forward to continue to dominate the NL West and uh, the NL in general. They're, the average age of their lineup has only gone down since 2015. Um, they obviously now have Cody Bellinger, who's taken the league by storm. Um, you know, you have Seager, who might be the best shortstop overall in the NL. Um, and with this rotation, you know, Rich Hill is aging, but, you know, the rest of the rotation is largely, you know, feasible going forward. And then you have Kenley Jansen coming out of the pen. Um, you know, it's just kind of a stark contrast against the Mets here. Uh, but what do you make of the Dodgers and, you know, where do you see them going, I guess, moving forward? Well, I think the... Uh clear comparison is that Mariners team that won uh it was 116 games right mm-hmm. yep they have the record but they fizzled out in the playoffs and you know because of that a lot of people don't remember the Mariners and how great they were that season I mean the Dodgers are definitely doing it right in that they have a lot of good young pieces in place you know Cody Bellinger has ascended to an MVP level player in in just you know 390 at bats, Corey Seager looks like he's going to be a superstar for years to come. You know Justin Turner has some life left in him, and despite the fact that Kershaw is on the wrong side of 30, you know they've got Urias in the waiting, they've got Alex Wood who's on the younger side, and they've got a couple other you know young guys that can come up and play. I think the trick for them is phasing in these young players so that you know they never have to go through a quote-unquote full full-on rebuild but at the same time you're talking about players that are at the top of their game like Kershaw you know when Kershaw is no longer at Kershaw level the Dodgers are going to take a significant step back but it looks like they're they're ready to dominate in the regular season for years to come the problem is is that we're still talking about a team that is mired in playoff failure at the end of the day, this team has yet to win a pennant, and they've had, you know, putting aside their historic team that is probably going to have a shot at chasing the record this year, they still have had, you know, 90, 100 win seasons, and, and year after year, you know, they get eliminated early on in the playoffs, or they get eliminated in heartbreaking fashion. You know, you could be as set up as you want in the regular season, and you could have the right mix of players, but when those lights come on, you need players who will perform in the playoffs. And I think this year is really the year whether the Dodgers will indicate whether they're going to be a postseason team that will perform for years to come. Regular season aside, we need to see Kershaw and these guys play in the postseason, and how they come out against their first-round matchup will be very indicative of how strong they will be in this postseason and maybe years to come. Yeah, when you take a look at the uh, the lineup that the Dodgers have, it, it's really incredible the way they, from top to bottom, they really get contributions from everyone. But, you know, Cody Bellinger comes up at the beginning of the year, and I remember reading something that Dave Roberts said uh, early in the season, you know, maybe middle of the season, where he's like, Cody Bellinger saved our season. And you know what? I really don't think it's that far off because, you know, this guy is having an incredible year, you know, it being his first year. He has 34 home runs. He has an OPS nearing 1,000. It's 968 as of our recording today uh, being Saturday. Um, And, you know, I don't think that can really be understated because Dodger Stadium is a really tough place to hit, especially at night. A lot of guys, you know, can't put up those power numbers at a a place like Dodger Stadium. You know, it's just, you know, you don't see 40 home run seasons um, in L.A. And, you know, he's, he's nearing that right now, and he has a very good chance to complete it. Um, you know, this is, like you said, you know, a team that, you know, has had some postseason troubles, you know, last, you know, almost the last decade, you know, since 2008 when they lost to the Phillies in the NLCS. They, you know, they haven't had as much trouble in the NLDS. You know, they've made a couple of uh, championship series appearances, but they can't get over that last hump. And, you know, a couple weeks ago I was sitting and thinking about the Dodgers, and for some reason I was thinking about the Washington Capitals in the NHL. And I'm just like, man, like the Capitals always really have that good regular season team. You know, Ovechkin puts up these numbers and, you know, they, you know, they kind of cruise into the playoffs, you know, one or two seed. They're usually a a top seed and they can never seem to get past the second round or, you know, even get into the conference finals. And a lot of people, you know, blame Ovechkin for not, you know, putting up the numbers that he should, 
in the uh, in the playoffs. And it kind of reminds me of the way that people talk about Clayton Kershaw, you know, not pitching to the level that he should be in the playoffs. And, you know, last year he had the great division series, but he didn't have a great um, championship series against the Cubs. I mean, at that point, he was probably kind of burned out from all the times he had pitched in the regular season and, you know, pitching the extra, you know, relief outing against the Nationals. But, you know, just I was kind of comparing these two and just thinking in my head, it's like, huh, if the Dodgers don't do it this year, it'll be almost, you know, the Capitals to a T this year because, you know, the Capitals, you know, they get Kevin Shattenkirk at the trade deadline and the Dodgers, you know, are making these moves, you know, be the best Dodgers team. And yeah, exactly. They get Hugh Darvish at the trade deadline, who's, you know, arguably the best pitcher on the market that was dealt this year. Although, you know, this was a crazy trade deadline, um, you know. They, it was kind of, you know, just very similar. And if the Dodgers don't do it this year, when will they ever do it? And I think the same thing is being said uh, in hockey with the Capitals. There's a lot of pressure on the Dodgers this year to make waves in the postseason. I, I don't think that that can be understated. Is if they, I mean, they have to feel it. Because if they go into the playoffs with 110-plus wins under their belt, far and away the best team in baseball, at fresh after winning the division for five consecutive years, I know how you can't feel some pressure to perform. You know, maybe their young guys are a little naive and kind of the cub syndrome where they're so young they don't understand the significance of it. But you know Kershaw's feeling it, Rich Hill is feeling it, you Darvish to some extent is feeling it. Uh, you know, you've got a lot of guys who need to perform here and I also think with Kershaw um you know, if he doesn't perform this year, I've always kind of been a Kershaw apologist. I still think he's the best pitcher in baseball. I think it's, you know, he's had some tough situations to deal with in the postseason, and some of it is brought on by his failures. Um, but, you know, he's coming in again. He's going to come into the postseason fresh off a back injury. And I, I just, I think he kind of got the raw end of the deal last year coming into the postseason off a back injury. Um, and then, you know, he ended up getting, you know, clubbed out of the game by the Cubs in game six. But he pitched a hell of a game in game game two in that series. You know, people forget that, but he held them hitless or near hitless for seven innings. And uh, kind of harkening back to what uh, JB said about the Mariners, you know, that 116 win team that, you know, a lot of people just frankly don't remember because, you know, A, they're the Mariners, you know, they're kind of just there and a lot of people don't talk about them that much. And, you know, B, they didn't end up winning the uh, the pennant or even the World Series that year. They lose to the Yankees. I think it was in five games. You know, it wasn't an incredibly close series. Um, and, you know, they're just kind of, you know, this forgotten piece of history. But, you know, going to this Dodgers team, I think, you know, where they're at now and who knows how many wins they're going to have. Maybe they'll, you know, get to that 116 or, you know, get kind of close and, you know, just fall short. To me, this year's team is... Um, it's more impressive just for the fact that, you know, that 116 Mariners team was, you know, playing in an era where, you know, the AL West was, was very good back then. Don't get me wrong, but the rest of the league just didn't have the parity that baseball has today. You know, there was a lot of variation, you know, in the league, you know, across, you know, across, you know, the American league at that time with, you know, who was good and who wasn't. And now I feel like, you know, across baseball, whether it be the national league and the American league, things are a lot closer and a lot tighter, you know, just because the way things are run, you know, scouting is better and how teams uh, deploy advanced stats. You know, the Dodgers are kind of at the forefront of both of those things. I want to make one point before we, we move on. And that's, you know, JP said how, you know, the Dodgers are really expected to make waves in the playoffs playoffs this year and it's it's a sentiment that we've really all echoed and one thing i want to point out is that when you guys mentioned earlier about clayton kershaw's back clayton kershaw is having recurring back issues now for Mm -hmm. years and you know i think we've seen from david wright how devastating a recurring back injury can be and it really makes you wonder is this the beginning of the end for kershaw i mean obviously when he's healthy he's the best pitcher on planet earth but you know if his back is starting to give out and he's the centerpiece of this dodger team then if they're not going win this year how many years can they really rely on him to be their ace i'm with you jb i think that's going to be uh the storyline of baseball for like the next two years is i think it's flying under the radar right now because he's performing but the minute that he hits a, a point in his career where he's kind of you know got like a four era and he hovers around four for a lot of the year you know people have to question this i mean back injuries are no small thing uh, particularly for a pitcher who relies so much upon his mechanics, you know, that consistent delivery over the top. I mean, it's just going to become a big part of their success and whether or not they can continue this run. I'm with you. But uh, 
So, yeah, I mean, I was actually just reading something. Uh, it was in the New York Times, which, you know, you don't think maybe of, uh, you know, being a leading sports section, but it was really interesting. They just talked to Joe Madden about, you know, the Cubs, you know, trying to get back to the uh, the playoffs and hopefully win another title. And, you know, they were asking about, you know, potentially facing the Dodgers again. And this is what he says. He says, listen, I'm very confident playing against them too. Absolutely. As we continue to get well, we need to finish off strongly, which we're capable of doing. But I like the way we match up against them a lot, not a little bit. You know, he's Joe Madden's a confident guy. And, you know, obviously they beat them in the NLCS last year. And it's interesting to see, you know, this year, you know, the Cubs haven't had as good of a year as they did last year in the regular season. But, you know, they're still confident that they can beat the Dodgers. Yeah, I don't know why that would be because the Dodgers are the better team right now. I I like I know the Dodgers like one weakness that's kind of like pounded into the ground is that they can't hit left-handed pitching. Uh, but do you see the Cubs starters with a lot of left-handed pitching besides Lester? I mean, I I mean Lester's I don't. hurt right now too. It's Lester and Montgomery, right? I I mean, I don't, I don't see where Joe Madden is coming from, particularly from someone who tried to choke away game 7 of the World Series last year. This is like the naive belief I had before where I said that in 2016, if the Mets had gotten over the Giants, then they would have been able to, you know, they had the Cubs number and then maybe they would have had the, the Dodgers number too. You just sometimes, you, I guess Joe Madden is subscribing to the belief that since he's had playoff success, success against them, that he owns them. I mean, just like, like Justin, like JP said, like Joe Madden did not have a great uh, postseason, especially in that World Series, managing, you know, his bullpen. I think he completely botched the way he used Chapman in that series. And, uh, I mean, like like we were just saying, the, the Dodgers don't hit left-hand pitching particularly well. I mean, that's kind of maybe their weakness. But the Cubs don't really present much of a challenge in that regard other than Lester. So, I mean, of course I think he's going to be confident. That's just the type of guy he is and, you know, most managers aren't going to say, oh, yeah, the Dodgers are going to beat us. So, um, I mean, I, I guess it's not that far off for him to say that, but it's just interesting to see him be, you know, that openly uh, confident in, uh, you know, something that's going to be published on a national level. Yeah, just I, I don't see it. Whatever. Yeah. Joe Madden's going to do Joe Madden things. Yeah, but, uh, sounds about anyways, right. We'll, I mean, we'll close uh, with the Mets and where they've gone since 2015, and this will get really depressing really quickly, so <laughs> we don't... don't we don't blame you if you leave us now, but um, basically, uh, just to do the quick overview, um, so obviously the Mets in 2015 went on to win the NLCS, they swept the Cubs, uh, and then they lost you know, a, a tragic World Series to the Royals, uh, because the Royals are the Grim Reaper for Major League Baseball. Um, and then in 2016, they have you know, a mildly underwhelming season. I think a lot of people picked them to win the division. Um, I mean, you know, whether logically or illogically, the Nationals were still a really good team at that time. So it was kind of a toss-up going into that year for me. Um, and then they win the wild, uh, they they get a wild card spot, and then ultimately lose in a, a horrific fashion uh, to the Giants and uh, one of the best pitchers' duels of all time for a winner-take-all game. Um, and we'll, I'm sure we'll touch on that in a second. Um, and then, you know, in 2017, it's all fallen by the wayside. But why don't you guys give your thoughts on where the Mets have gone? Just some pre preliminary things, and we'll jump in um, in a little bit. Well, the Nationals, you know, they've never really had a drop-off, which is, you know, what a lot of people overlook. The Mets were just fortunate in that they really imploded on themselves in 2015. And the fact that the Mets had acquired Cespedes and really came together really allowed them to make the best of that situation. 2016 was a big disappointment because they were they were I want to say they were heavy favorite because like you said the Nationals were a very good team but a lot of people definitely thought they were capable of winning the division especially with the talent they had and the postseason and stretch run experience that they picked up the year before. I got to be honest with you when it was July August I was completely in the dumps about them I thought they were completely out of it. You know, it, it took them a lot to rally back into that wild card spot, and it just really, really was exciting that they were able to get to that point. But it was upsetting that their offense just didn't show up for that game. You know, it was it was funny because uh, I was actually visiting with my grandfather, who's eighty seven, and he was in in Staten Island for the game, and it was it was just by happenstance because there was a hurricane going on in Florida, so he had stayed extra longer. And I thought this would be great. You know, my grandpa's a 
huge baseball fan. We'll be able to take in a Mets playoff game together for the first time. God knows how long. It'll be a great memory. And, you know, if you asked him, I was a nervous wreck through that entire game. And when Gillespie hit that home run, it really, it really just broke our spirits. So that was definitely, you know, the turning point for the Mets. And when they entered 2017, they were just a team doomed to fail right off the bat. You know, they were mobbed by injuries and, and lackluster performance. And I'm glad they've kind of embraced, you know, the half break it down, you know, gear themselves for next year. But at the same time, it doesn't seem like a team that is not willing to, you know, invest in usable assets is really going to be able to turn around and compete in 2018 after such a, you know, ominous year. Yeah, I think what uh, what best defines this Met season right now is that press release that came out a couple of days ago where you literally see about 10 of their players just listed on what injuries and what injury updates they have on these players. It's like, all right, Seth Lugo had this surgery. David Wright's playing in St. Lucie. And, you know, it just goes on and on with these different injuries that they have and who's at where in their rehab. And, you know... It kind of goes back to last year. There were a lot of expectations in 2016 for the Mets to, you know, repeat as division champs or, you know, at least make the playoffs. And I mean, they ended up winning, you know, the, the first wild card spot. But, you know, in July and August of that year, it things were not looking good. You know, the staff was decimated with injuries. The offense, again, was, you know, very, very lackluster. And, you know, they go on a great run, albeit against some, you know, pretty poor competition but, you know, they they went out the first wild card and end up losing to the Giants. And I, I still maintain that if they had faced any other pitcher than Baumgartner, they would have won that game. Baumgartner's just a freak in the postseason, and I don't think they had a chance. And, you know, a lot of people coming into this year, you know, thought, all right, you know, they'll get the rotation healthy. They'll get, um, you know, pretty good pieces back in the lineup. They essentially just brought back the same team together, minus Bartolo Colon. It was basically, you know, the same team as 2016 Someone's like, all right, you know, this isn't a bad team going into it. They can roll with it. Um, you know, they'll compete with the Nationals. But, you know, right away out of spring training, Lugo and Mats are both injured. And, you know, they never really got off the ground running. You know, they win opening day. But, you know, other than that, you know, it was a really slow start in April. And since then, they just haven't picked it up. And, you know, the injuries have picked up. And, you know, since then, just... It's, uh, you know, it's been kind of a disappointing year. It's, uh, you know, they've had some bright spots. But for the most part... Um, it's been overshadowed by injuries. You know, Michael Conforto makes the all-star team in a breakout year, you know, where he almost didn't even start the year with the Mets. He almost began the year in AAA Las Vegas, but, you know, Brandon Nimmo gets hurt and, you know, he's on the, he's at the, uh, he's at opening day and his name actually gets skipped over during the announcements, which was really funny. It's just kind of funny to think about now with the season that he's had. And, you know, he's having this great year, and he injures his shoulder a couple days ago. So it seems like, you know, every bright spot they've had has been, you know, overtaken by, you know, some sort of freak injury. And it's just, you know, a microcosm of the whole season. Just to interject before you go ahead, JP, the Mets have never made the postseason three years in a row. I think they've made it twice in a row, four times in franchise history. So this team is already, already, you know, the start had history working against them. That's really interesting. That's a really interesting statistic. I didn't know that at yeah, all. Yeah, I think that actually the only times that they've made it back-to-back is, you know, this past run in 2015-16, and the other time was 99-2000. You know, in the 80s, they had that great run where, you know, 86 and 88, they made it, and they would have made it um, if the wild card existed probably, I think, every year from, like, 84 to 90. But, you know, they're not a team that has... Um, a history of incredibly long sustained success. You know, it's kind of, you know, a short run here, a short run there. And, you know, this looked like a team that was going to be built to have longer-term success with the young pitching that they had. But, you know, injuries have come and, you know, kind of derailed it at least this season and maybe even potentially next year. Yeah, and in that rotation, I see two bright bright spots. There's Jacob deGrom, consistency, and then there's two months of Noah Syndergaard, and then Syndergaard threw that away, um, perhaps by being extremely stubborn and not listening to team doctors. Uh, and so we, I mean, we have to talk about this because there's such dysfunction within the organization when it comes to communication with the medical staff and Terry Collins. It's just, it seems like such an institutional problem. Um, so we'll use Syndergaard as kind of the trope that we view this through, but what did you guys make of that situation and where do you see it getting resolved? Well, 
the way I see it is how is Ray Ramirez still with this organization? The guy is basically Dr. Kevorkian at this point. You know, it just, it really speaks of institutional disorganization about how they're not able to properly diagnose and treat the injuries that occur in their organization. And, you know, the Mets are affiliated with the hospital special surgery, and maybe they need to consider that they, they should part ways and maybe partner up with a different hospital. But at the same time, you know, I'm one of those people who believe they should, you know, can their entire training staff, starting with Ramirez. It's just crazy to see a team that has so much potential, so much talent, not be derailed by a bad play, but rather freak injury after freak injury. And you almost have to wonder, you know, is it is it possible for bad luck to occur like this? You know, as Andrew said before, Michael Conforto in the midst of a breakout year, a year where he almost sat the year in AAA, turns, swings a bat and has a freak injury where he pops his shoulder on a swing. You know, you have Cespedes who went down again with another leg injury for, what is it, the fourth time this season? Yeah, it's you know, crazy. You know, your starting rotation is just getting injury after injury. And given all their experience with, with uh, you know, misdiagnoses and different injuries, you would think that they really would have shoved the MRI down Syndergaard's throat instead of letting him pitch injured, especially that early in the season. You know, if Syndergaard had gotten the MRI and had shown that he was injured, he could have rehabbed and probably had a chance to pitch significantly in 2017, but because of his stubbornness and the organization trying to reverse course and all of a sudden be hands off with their superstar, it cost them. So it's very disappointing to see, you know, I can't speak to, you know, how they run their medical staff and the ins and out of it. So I can't, you know, offer, you know, advice on what, what they need to do, but I think they need to sit down as an organization and really, you know, evaluate how they're doing things. If they're going to avoid having a season where, you know, you're having 10, 11 of 10, 11 guys on the 25 man roster going down with significant injuries. Yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't go to school for AT or PT and I know plenty of people that did. So, you know, I'm not going to give a, a medical diagnosis of how, you know, the Mets run their staff, but it is interesting to see, you know, Conforto obviously I think was a completely freak thing where he hurts his shoulder. That's not something that you can, you know, prevent or plan for. But there have been, you know, a lot of these soft tissue injuries, you know, like Cespedes with his hamstrings, you know, things of that nature. And, you know, I think after this off season, you know, the Mets got to evaluate, you know, from top down, you know, how they're, you know, training these guys, how they're evaluating their injuries when they first get hurt, and, you know, how to use the disabled list in a better way. Because, you know, this year there's a 10-day disabled list, and I really don't think the Mets have used that to their advantage. You know, they have these guys that end up getting hurt, you know, whether, you know, it's a, it's a thumb injury or a hand injury, you know, something minor, but that can, you know, have a guy sit out for a couple of days. And, you know, instead of putting them on this shorter 10-day DL, they'll have them sit on the bench and, you know, basically useless you know they can't you know come in as a pinch hitter or a defensive replacement they just sit there on the bench and they essentially you know have a roster where you know they they're down you know one or two guys at a time and you know having a short bench is not preferable and it hurts you you know when it comes down to a situation where you know you need to make a pitching change and you want to bring up a pinch hitter it's like huh we only have our backup catcher and we don't want to waste him let's put in Steven Matz to pinch hit in the fourth inning which you know has happened on you know a couple of occasions well, another thing I wanted to add in is that, you know, for baseball perspective, prospectus Mets, I contribute a lot of uh, series previews and we have a template and you get to the point where you have to talk about the disabled list. And, you know, every week, you know, my my paragraph about the Mets injury situation just gets longer and longer. It's 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 scary. It's disconcerting. And, you know, for this team to be so derailed, it's like you said, you know, you're hurting your bench by misusing the disabled list and not using guys properly, not letting them take time on the DL. It, it really is a shame to see what's going on. Yeah, it's certainly depressing. Um, and I, unless Andrew, do you, do you have something to add there? Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know, like we were, like I mentioned before, the Dodgers, you know, they've been, you know, they've caught the injury bug just as hard this year, maybe even harder than the Mets. But it just seems like the Mets, like, you know, if you watch this team, it's always some sort of freak thing or it always happens to a top guy that they can't have it replace, like, replace it with, you know, like David Wright. Like, who are you going to replace David Wright with? Like, I know they put in Wilmer Flores at third, but, you know, they have Jose Reyes this year and everyone's like, oh, man, like, 
Reyes is back. You know, he had this pretty good run last year. Like, he's going to be great at third base, and he has just been god-awful. Like, he should not be on a major league roster right now. Um, you know, it's just, it always seems like someone gets hurt in a very Metsy way where, you know, it's some sort of freak thing, and then they just don't have the depth to replace them. And, you know, it just, you know, hurts the, the lineup and the bench going forward. And, uh, you know, it just, it, it seems like it happens over and over again. I think Zach Wheeler is a major microcosm of how the organization has mismanaged their injury situation, starting starting with his Tommy John situation, his recovery, his return this year, and his on and off injuries where they refused to put him on the DL and then would do it retroactively. Yeah, and I think you can also make that point about Steven Matz. You know, he has this reputation, you know, of always being hurt. You know, he's not a tough guy. And then, you know, we find out a couple of days ago that he's been battling this injury all year, which I think a lot of people, you know, had this feeling that was the case considering, you know, how his last couple of starts looked where it's like, huh, he's throwing the pitch, throwing pitches right down the middle to, you know, seemingly every hitter. This, you know, he's, he's generally a good pitcher when he's healthy. Why is he this bad? Like, you know, he has like a, a 10 ERA over, you know, a four start span. And, you know, it's just, you know, like you said, like, you know, Zach Wheeler, Steven Matz, you know, it's a microcosm of this whole season where, you know, they have these guys that are playing through injuries and, you know, not performing up to expectations. And, you know, whether that comes through, you know, the player, you know, kind of being stubborn like Syndergaard where he thinks, you know, he's this god that can pitch through an injury or, you know, whether it's someone from the front office telling these guys, hey, you know, this injury isn't so bad that you can play through it. Either way you slice it, it's just, you know, it's not a good look. I'd like to read a deep dive on the Mets' approach to preserving pitchers' arms, or lack thereof, because there have, there's been a lot written about it, about um, other teams who have found success with it, you know, notably the Dodgers, um, the, the Indians to some extent, the Rays as well, um, the ways that teams are trying to preserve arms and the methods and different things like that. And it just seems like it's non-existent for the Mets because this has been such a problem with their young arms for the past three years. Even, I mean, even when they were successful, they were having injuries. It's not like, you know, Wheeler's been out for, you know, essentially three or four years with with injuries. Mats has been shut down pretty consistently. Um, you know, DeGrom's had a couple of DL stints, you know, here and there. Harvey obviously has, you know, some freak injuries in his past, and Syndergaard has a bone chip in his elbow. So, I mean, this isn't some new thing. I'm just curious if there's something investigative that could be done to kind of unearth, you know, whether this is a, a, something that could be prevented with better treatment. And I think, you know, uh, the Mets aren't the only team that have had trouble with, you know, arm injuries with younger guys. Like the Cardinals come to mind, you know, they've had a lot of injuries with their pitchers recently. You know, Alex Reyes, you know, uh, Chris Carpenter even got hurt when he was, you know, obviously he was a veteran pitcher. And, you know, Adam Wainwright's dealt with injuries. Um, but, you know, it just seems like the Mets, like you said, you know, it's been these young arms that have had these issues. And is it something in the way they handle them or is it a string of bad luck? You know, you've got to take a a holistic view of this and a lot of people want to point to and again I don't know the science behind it and what's good for your elbow or not but a lot of people point to you know Dan Worthen's use of the you know the slider that a lot of these guys that pitch with you know there's kind of been this debate whether you know is this slider detrimental to someone's UCL a lot of people say oh you know this this slider that he actually lets them use is actually easier on your arm but a lot of other people say no it's actually causing more harm than good so I think that's something that, uh, you know, should, you know, be approached and be looked at, you know, in a more scientific way rather than, you know, just kind of uh, speculative. Yeah. And uh, from here, I want to transition and we'll go two different directions to kind of end the podcast here. Um, one, I want to get your perspectives on um, how you evaluate the Mets deals at the deadline, kind of as JB referenced before, they they started going into a fire sale mode but didn't fully commit. So there's that. Uh, we'll start there. You know, obviously, um, you know, they traded away Addison Reed. They traded away Jay Bruce. They've since traded away Curtis Granderson. Um, you know, where do you guys stand on this? And, you know, do you think that – would, would you give them a good grade on their – deadline deals you know it's it's a loaded answer because these a lot of these players were simply viewed as dumps and anything they got in return 
would be, you know, acceptable. I mean, the only one that really hurt for me was Jay Bruce because I felt that even though I didn't really understand why they had acquired him in the first place, I thought they got him at a good value and he proved that he's really a worthwhile piece of a contending lineup. You know, Jay Bruce on a really awful Mets team batted 260 and hit 27 home runs with 70 plus RBIs. Hey, he's slugging 600 for the Indians right now. Yeah, you know, with Conforto, you know, you basically either one of them could be considered the best offensive cog in this machine this year. And I fully believe that if you could slot Conforto into center field and he was able to manageably play it, that Jay Bruce would be a really important piece to this lineup in 2018. You know, the Mets are really trying to turn around and become a playoff team in 2018, and you need Major League power bats to do that. And when you pair a guy like Jay Bruce with Ioannis Cespedes, Michael Conforto, and some of the other, you know, like lower tier hitters in the lineup, you have a pretty good lineup to boot. And without Jay Bruce on this team, it's just, it makes me wonder, you know, where are they going to get, you know, that other form of production from? Yeah, Dominic Smith and Ahmed Rosario are coming up, but they're still young players, you know. Look how long it really took Conforto to really break out. You know, they say that the third year is really is really when a player comes into his own, and that's not going to be 2018 for those two guys. So, Granderson being at the end of his deal and being a little older, I was perfectly okay with, with uh, you know, being shipped out, especially since that it seemed that he was, he was pretty much past his prime. Reed, you know, I didn't want to see him go because the Mets acquired him for pennies on the dollar, and he had just you know, turn things out and become a very crucial performer for them. But I think they offset that by getting A.J. Ramos back in return, even if in the aggregate they had to pay a little bit more of a price than they really should have. And then with all the other guys, you know, you're just talking about role players getting dumped. So at the end of the day, the only player that I really thought should have hung around and be resigned is Jay Bruce. But they could alleviate all that if, you know, this winter they go out and they sign Jay Bruce or a player of Jay Bruce's caliber. Just the question is, is that are any of these, you know, arms they got in return, any of these relief prospects really going to become contributors? I mean, I know that, you know, my last point here being the really ace to the prospect they got, the prospects they got in these trades is Drew Smith, who they got in return for Duda, who's supposed to be a, you know, a relief ace, but he's in Binghamton right now. You know, is that, does that mean he'll be in new, in Flushing next year, or is he going to spend the year, you know, miring around in double A AA and triple A? Yeah, I think there's a lot to untangle with, you know, how they approach this deadline, you know, the pieces that they got and who they traded. Just to just to kind of first off start, the guys that they traded were probably not coming back for the most part. You know, these are guys on the, the end of their deals or, you know, they had guys kind of being supplanted their positions. You know, speaking of Duda, Dominic Smith was in the wing, so, you know, he was going to eventually come up. They couldn't just keep Duda blocking him. They wanted to see what Smith had. Um, like you said, you know, Jay Bruce is an interesting case because, you know, when he first came over, a lot of fans were like, what, like, especially with, you know, the, the horrible, you know, run that he had in August and September, other than, you know, that last week that he had, it was like, why did they get Jay Bruce? You know, this makes no sense. And then, you know, they try and deal him in the off season and, you know, they kind of overplayed their hand and there really wasn't a market for him. So he was kind of stuck on this team. And, you know, like you said, he had a really great year. He was hitting the ball well with power. And he was, uh, you know, one of the few bright spots in this lineup. And I would have been okay with them keeping him for this year, especially since he, he did have a, a qualifying offer coming up. So even if he didn't sign and they offered him that, uh, you know, that qualifying offer, they would have gotten draft pick compensation out of it. So I would have been okay with that. Um, but, you know, a lot of these trades, I think the the returns are almost negligible because, you know, they're, they're guys on the last year, their deals, you know, you can't really expect them to get a prospect haul for for the guys that they were dealing so it was just you know like you said you know to get rid of salary and you know hopefully you know gear up for the uh, you know next couple of years where they can spend some money in the off season and uh you know go forward in in different positions and but i think the the thing that kind of hurt them is the way that they kind of went about it that they they waited so long to make a lot of these deals and you know they traded you know walker and granderson past the trade deadline uh you know in waiver deals. And I think the thing that kind of hurts that in a sense is because, you know, they have these younger guys, let's say like Gavin Cicchini and uh, Brandon Nimmo, who we've seen play, but we don't really know what they're all about at the major league level. They do have, you know, some experience, but not a ton of at-bats. And I think, you know, getting them here earlier 
would have been better just for the fact that, you know, you're giving them more experience, you're getting to see what they can bring to the major league level. And, you know, you can see whether you want to use them as pieces going forward in the starting lineup or if, you know, they're not uh, guys that you want to help build around. It's, uh, you know, this is a, an interesting time for the Mets because, you know, they're kind of in flux. It's like, all right, who are they going to have, you know, starting in the infield, outfield, uh, for the next couple of years as you know, they try to get back to, you know, a winning record. You know, they, you think that they'll have DeGrom and Syndergaard hopefully going forward in the rotation, but I think, you know, the, uh, the guys in the field are kind of up in the air right now. Just one last thing to interject is that, you know, all of their trade deadline deals were essentially salary dumps oh, to yeah. get them off the hook for, you know, the back end of these guys on expiring contracts. So the Mets were at, I think 140 million this year. Are they going to take that money that they saved this year and reinvest it next year? Yeah, I think it's interesting. That's a big question. It's interesting to see how they'll play with that money, or if you know they'll kind of go the route like, all right, we're going to try and build from our farm system. But right now, you know, things aren't looking so great um, in that regard because a lot of the guys that had uh, you know had success in the minor leagues are now you know in the major leagues. You know, they've got to replenish their farm system. Um, and so it'll be curious to see if they use that extra money that they, they got in these trades to actually spend it on free agents because, you know, there's a big question about who's going to be the center fielder next year. A lot of people do not think Michael Conforto has the defensive range to play center. So will they go after a guy like Lorenzo Cain or, you know, like you said, Jay Bruce and put him in right and move Conforto to center? Um, you know, it's going to be a, an interesting offseason and see how uh, they approach it. Yeah, we'll get to where they're going in a second, but let me give my two cents worth on Jay Bruce. Personally, uh, I've never been a Jay Bruce fan. I don't like him very much as a player with kind of like the low average, low OBP, but power kind of average fielder kind of guy. Um, but that trade was pretty, like, I know they got salary relief. I didn't like the trade, though. The return on it was really bad. Ryder Ryan is a average like a farmhand, essentially. Uh, he was a farmhand with the Indians organization. Uh, Bruce has come in and made an immediate impact. And I just think that Sandy should have done a much better job of negotiating there, um, gotten a better return. Um, I do think that Bruce has some value, like JB pointed out. I think Bruce, you're very right, could have been a very important piece um, in a Cespedes, Conforto, Bruce outfield in 2018. And they could have been right back where they started in 2015. You know, they would have been kind of solid. Um, and they, they kind of threw away an opportunity for that. And, you know, like you said, they did get salary relief. It was the same with Granderson and Duda, salary relief. I get it. Um, but you just want, I just want to see some more young arms infused into the farm system at the very least, or maybe a, a promising young bat. The, the Jay Bruce situation is an interesting one. Like you said, you know, he doesn't have a high OPP. He's never had a high average. He's a really streaky guy as, you know, you know, the Mets, Mets saw in his, his brief tenure, um, you know, it was kind of an interesting situation because, you know, he did provide power. And, you know, he kind of was, you know, making this outfield situation a little harder because, you know, they had guys like Granderson who, you know, was definitely having an off year, but, you know, it was kind of putting him on the bench. It was kind of an awkward situation. And they didn't have a true center fielder because Lagaris is hurt. And, you know, he hasn't really proven that he can do much with the bat. Um, so right now their outfield just doesn't really have that piece where, you know, you can kind of go forward and say, all right, this is what their outfield is going to look like in the future. Um, you know, we can roll with this. And especially with Conforto's injury, who knows when he's going to come back and when he's going to be healthy enough to, you know, swing the bat or, you know, live up to what he did this year. Closing point on that, the Mets had a better deal on the table for Jay Bruce from the Yankees. Yeah. But I was just should. about to talk about that. I wanted to get your take on that. What you guys thought of shunning the Yankees a better deal in favor of trading with a non-rival? I'm very curious. I don't even think it factored into the you know, the Mets wanting to, you know, avoid trading to the Yankees. I just felt that the Mets have this really awful perspective about saving money as opposed to replenishing their farm system. And they had two prospects from the Yankees that they had specifically asked for in exchange for Bruce. And they chose, you know, the salary dump in Ryder Ryan, who <laughs> will ultimately probably be nothing for this team. So it's disappointing when your organization takes, takes a strategy like that and, it really just reflects 
how bad ownership's attitude is right now. Yeah, I'm sure we'll never find out what the pro- who the prospects were that the Mets were going to potentially get in that trade. So, I mean, I have a personally a hard time speculating what uh, what that trade would be like. But you know, when you see two guys that could potentially get dealt to the Mets instead of you know you know like getting rid of most of the salary for one you know lesser prospect, it does seem uh, a little curious about why what the motives were behind that trade. And a lot of people do say that, oh, the Mets didn't want to trade to the Yankees because, you know, if the Yankees, you know, use Jay Bruce and somehow, you know, make it to the World Series and win it, it does hurt the Mets, you know, in more ways than one. But um, to me, I don't, I don't have a problem trading with the Yankees if the Mets could get something of value with it. I don't think it, it makes much of a difference. I mean, they play each other a couple times a year, but other than that, like, it, it really shouldn't matter in that regard. But, um, you know, it was just an interesting way they went about this this trade. And, you know, it's, of course, when you hear that the Mets were going to possibly make a deal with the Yankees and it fell through, of course, it's going to make big news and, uh, you know, be something yeah. that fans are going to be it's talking about. The New York media firestorm. It was a perfect storm. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly. But uh, just to close here, uh, I want to get your outlooks on where the Mets go from here. So they have a bunch of prospects up right now. Praise be Ahmed Rosario and Dominic Smith, uh, both struggling a little bit. Um, but I want to see what your outlooks are. Um, I mean, in theory, for, from my perspective, I see you know, if, if they have a healthy rotation next year with Syndergaard, uh, Degrom, um, Mats, etc. If they bring some people back, if it, if the rotation goes the way they want it to, and they make some a couple savvy free agent moves, I do see a contender again, uh, which is really interesting because the season's been a catastrophe. Um, and you just, I, I'm just curious what, where you see these prospects fitting in and whether they're going to make an immediate impact in 2018. Well, short of, you know, complete health for the rotation, you know, two young prospects, you know, performing at a high level, which is, you know, another heavy ask and signing a big bat in free agency that could replenish the power they lost between Duda, Grandison and Bruce departing. I have a hard time seeing them as a contender. I don't think they're going to be a catastrophe the way they were this year, but we're talking about a team that as presently constructed and healthy coming back next year is more on the curve of, you know, a low 80 win team as opposed to being, you know, that high 80, 90 win team that could compete for a wild card or potentially win the division. The Nationals are a very good team, and that is a, is a tough hump to get over in terms of the division. You know, we would essentially have to count on them imploding again, which, you know, under Dusty Baker really doesn't seem too likely. So it's not off the table. You know, a lot of things have to go right, but I really think it's going to come down to them shoring up their bullpen and adding a bat in free agency for this team to really, really have a chance to be, you know, one of the more formidable teams in the National League. Yeah, like JB said, I don't think they're going to be completely awful next year, but I don't see them contending for a postseason spot. Um, You know, there are still a lot of questions on this team going forward, like who's going to be the starting second baseman? Who's going to play third base? Um, these are questions that, you know, don't have easy answers because, you know, I think the Mets have done, you know, at least under Sandy Alderson's regime, they've done a better job of acquiring players through trades rather than through free agency. And right now, I don't think they have a ton of pieces that they can give up to acquire some high level talent. You know, they, they kind of have to stick with what they have right now. And I think next year is going to be a lot of evaluating. You're going to see guys like you know obviously Rosario is the top prospect right now so you're going to see what he has you're going to see a lot of Dominic Smith and see what potential he has maybe you'll see Gavin Sacchini playing a lot of second base to see you know what they have out of him like I said Brandon Nimmo maybe you'll see him play a lot of outfield and there are a lot of guys that you know they want to evaluate and I think next year is the year they do it and I honestly don't see them uh, you know going for a playoff spot. It's going to be a year of you know trying to answer questions and then eventually filling holes. Yeah, it's very much dependent upon what they do this off season and you know kind of you know which free agents they tend to go after. I think it it completely depends on the Will Pond's approach to free agency this year, whether they see themselves as having a potential contender that they want to spend money on and use that money or whether they see a rebuild in the future. So. It'll make for a for a good 
postseason uh, offseason podcast. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, yeah. I agree. Truly, yeah, you're right. Well, thanks for joining us, JB. Uh, Andrew, if you want to run through his uh, credentials one more time, yeah, for sure. And if uh, you want to follow JB, aka Justin Birnbaum, his real name, you can follow him on Twitter at at Bernie fifty three, and that's B I R N Y five three. And uh, he's the managing editor of Base Knock MLB, and he's a writer for Baseball Prospectus Mets. Um, you should definitely give him a follow and interact with him on Twitter. He's got some uh, good Mets opinions. And uh, thanks for joining us for the show. We really appreciated having you. And we hope you, uh, you, know, you can join us another time. Guys, thanks for having me. I had a blast. And I'll, uh, I'll be back anytime you ask. <laughs> thanks, JB. All right, that'll just about do it for us here. Thanks again for listening to this two-part series we had on the Mets and Dodgers. Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can at Both Ways Podcast. Give us a like on Facebook at the I've Heard of Both Ways Podcast Facebook page. Subscribe to us on iTunes for, you know, making it easier for yourself to listen to while you're in the car or on your way to work, however you do that. We're also on Stitcher and SoundCloud, however you get your podcast in your ears. Uh, we're pretty much there. So, you know, thanks again. And, uh, you know, we're, we hope to do this, you know, more regularly, but, you know, jobs kind of get in the way. So, you know, we're hoping to do more over the next couple of weeks. So, again, uh, we appreciate the listen. <laughs>